we did uh, intend to go through the passages in 1 Corinthians really as a, as a fellowship to see what the Lord would have for us to understand in a typical church, in a typical sinful culture. And we have that, of course, in the book of 1 Corinthians uh, as well as in 2 Corinthians. This is uh, not a particularly uh, welcoming passage, I admit to you, 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, It is something that uh, on Monday I contemplated uh, passing off and casting to another day. But it seemed appropriate that uh, we would, at least at this time, continue our sweep through the book of 1 Corinthians and really see that uh, what it is that the Lord would have for us. Uh, Learning to deal biblically with big congregational challenges is certainly best received and understood when the battle isn't raging. And by the grace of God, the battle isn't raging at this moment. So I'm grateful for that. And this is a good a good time. It's a good time. Uh, no military leader is going to propose that we learn how to fight in the fight. Um, we do learn in the fight, but nonetheless we want to we want to understand principles, basics, the application of the Word of God and the rudimentary strategies that God lays out for us to live our lives. So that the documentation, the principles of His Word given to us certainly uh, are those things which are better received uh, in a situation that uh, wouldn't be described as all-out warfare. So I'm grateful for that. And so I trust that the Lord has much for us here. And let's look, there are 13 verses in 1 Corinthians 5, and uh, it is an acute issue, uh, but also it's an issue that is touched upon uh, in in the entire letter. So the letter is, of course, a comprehensive whole, and we can see, uh, for instance, the issue of wisdom comes up quite a bit in the entire epistle, this uh, first epistle to the Corinthians, and there are other issues that also uh, come up. Sanctification, of course, we understand. We've, we've mentioned that this the entire letter, in a sense, is in the category of sanctification. And, uh, and so the Lord has set before us, I think, some, some helpful, helpful things for us here. Uh, really, as I see it here, there are three primary uh, issues, really, as we look at 1 Corinthians 5 here. The first, the acute issue with breathtaking public immorality. Likely not unassociated with the egregious state of sexual immorality in their city. At this point, uh, the city of Corinth was a Roman city. Um, And in its Greek days, um, the uh, rampant sexual immorality, the the temple of Aphrodite was uh, in its full swing. Uh, There were apparently... um, Perhaps a thousand temple prostitutes there, maybe more. Um, but in its Roman days, um, the temple of Aphrodite was still uh, at work. The Roman leaders um, commended and allowed for that to continue. Um, but, of course, not. it wasn't to the extent that uh, in the Greek days. So, suffice it to say, there was a kind of normal burden, if you will, in the society and culture of sexual immorality. It was very common. Uh, And so because of that, um, no doubt there were situations um, that 
were very edgy uh, regarding sexuality, but nonetheless, because of the egregious situation that was present everywhere, uh, no doubt that would have an impact on the way that they dealt with this particular acute issue, the public aspect, the egregious aspect of it. Secondly, the long-standing issue of pride in the Corinthian church. Pride in their church inclined them to officially overlook sin, since great churches don't have sin in them, supposedly. Though this, of course, isn't true. Pride included them, inclined them to think that things were far better in their church than they really were. The big story here isn't that anyone should be shocked that there are sinners in the church, but that denying sin halts the ongoing intrusive work of sanctification and papers over the real body of work in in a church. Um, None of us likes to admit that we're imperfect and that our imperfections aren't accidents. Um, Often they're... Uh, intentional sins and uh, if we sort of paper over this idea then we're we're not fooling anyone Uh, we may fool ourselves momentarily but the Apostle Paul uh, again reveals that uh, their, their pride their desire to be seen and understood as Uh, the pinnacle of faithfulness uh, such that uh, they would consider even uh, the apostolic ministry of the Apostle Paul to be marginalized by the super-apostles that's addressed later on. Paul, again, is is dealing with this. Um, One of the most important reasons for the intensive cultivation of transparent warm piety is to address the leaven while it's still small um, and, and not allow issues to grow larger. And so we, we see that they were puffed up in their knowledge um, and they lacked discernment that comes from maturity. So they had kind of a both edges of the sword, if you will. They, they had this pride thing um, and because of it they puffed up they were puffed up in their own understanding, which uh, they measured as far beyond what it really was, and because of that they lacked discernment. And so there was false teaching that came in and they didn't they didn't really uh, they, they weren't wise enough in the Word. They weren't spiritually mature enough to identify it as being problematic. And so it came in and, uh, of course, did damage in the church as well. Paul hammers away at the necessity for Christ, who alone can give us salvation, and he hammers away at the idea that our personal sin is the problem. Now, I'm using this term, our personal sin, uh, in counter-distinction to someone else's personal sin. Uh, because that is also an inclination of pride, right? The, the situation that things would be much better if everyone around me was better. When we don't affirm the fact that everybody around you would be better if you were better. Uh, and so, yeah, that... The rest of it is their story. Them getting better is their story, but your story, right? Your story is that your own growth and holiness makes goodness around you, and that's the idea. Thirdly, an overarching issue in this section is also the growth and affirming that Christ is not merely the prophet and the priest, but also the king of the church 
at Corinth. They had a faithful source of truth. They enjoyed the priestly substitutionary aspects of Christ's role as priest. They affirmed that. They affirmed uh, this, uh, this absolutely urgent idea and truth, of course, that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. He is the one whose life was laid down for us. He lived a perfect life applied to us. He obeyed the Lord in all things, and he also paid the penalty for our sins. That's the priestly role of Christ. Uh, They would also, of course, in many ways affirm the prophetic role. Even the super-apostles that the Apostle Paul has to deal with were this prophetic role, this unwittingly that they received, again, uh, as a desire in some ways to see the prophetic role of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Apostle Paul is addressing in this area of sanctification the idea of the kingly role of Christ. In other words, will I conform myself to a holy Savior? His kingly role. And so the Apostle Paul addresses that as well. Now, let's consider some of the cultural context, um, as awkward as it is, of the sexual immorality in Corinth. And uh, while it is awkward, the reality is is we're we're in the same situation. Uh, we are so inundated with sexually explicit images that, in some ways, we're perhaps on the one hand numb to them, but on the other hand, we may be inclined to reduce uh, the urgency of of uh, the 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 you know problems with it and we may be drawn into its normalcy and we may begin to kind of approve of it not realizing all the while that what it's doing is grinding away at our own consciences it's negatively impacting uh, relationships in our lives it's changing our own mentality for how we view for instance women or how women view men and so forth and so uh, when when we look at the context here, it's important that we see that we're there. There's much uh, that is very similar. Uh, I, I won't even spend any time discussing the sex traffic trade in our own nation, in our own city. Uh, it's horrifying. Uh, but nonetheless, that that this is the country and the situation that we live in. We live in a community that is rampant with sexual, with the sexual traffic and trade of sex slaves in our city, and so we shouldn't think that that we that we don't know or that we're not uh, you know somehow nearby uh, this this sort of sexual immorality. And the Corinthian church had some different responses to it. For instance, in chapter 6, as we look at the context, even of chapter 5, in chapter 6, verses 12 through 20, uh, it's apparent that some Corinthians had the notion that life in Christ was purely spiritual. And so physical sexual immorality was not a concern. This is, this is not an abnormal inclination. As a matter of fact, when people equate fleshliness with sin, they're doing the same thing. 
They're saying, no, no, it doesn't. My flesh isn't important, right? My relationship to God is totally spiritual. That's why physicality doesn't matter. That's why I can worship God at home in my fuzzy slippers, right? That is connected to a rejection of the physical aspect of my relationship with Christ. And it's also a rejection of this idea uh, that in the end, right, we're going to be fleshly and we're going to be perfect, right? And one of the cool things about the context here in 1 Corinthians 5, and I would encourage you to allow this to be in the back of your mind as you read the letters of the Apostle Paul and also all of the writings in the Scripture. But as we're focusing on the Apostle Paul's writings today, I would encourage you to allow to fix in your mind the truth that the Apostle Paul saw the end of all things firsthand. He knows how the story ends. He's literally been to heaven. And so it behooves us to listen to him as he writes to us, right? So in in chapter 6, again, Paul accentuates their union with Christ. If we look at 6.15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ, that is, your physical bodies? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. He reveals the mysterious union that sexual intimacy includes, even for the unmarried who have no future intentions with each other. Right? Thus, in immoral sexuality, the believer joins Christ with immorality. The dragging of Christ into our sins because of our union with Him should be a very significant exhortation to holiness. Paul accentuates the sanctification, the setting apart for God aspect of our redemption as he alludes to our bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit. Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. The dwelling place of God is with man. If you're expecting a glorious physical temple in heaven, I fear you might be disappointed. I don't expect one there. The dwelling place of God is not ultimately in a temple. It's in and with man. Right? And so the Apostle Paul is is connecting... Right, our own physical bodies in union with Christ. And he, he is showing and He is bringing to bear this idea that wherever you go and whatever it is that you do, Christ is with you. He is attached to you. In fact, you are attached to Him, right? And He, he has submitted Himself to go with you because of your union with Him. Associated with this is dealing with the separation of the person of Christ and His benefits. Again, this kingly role of Christ, right? This kingly 
role of Christ. As the Apostle taught the Corinthians about the Gospel, he taught them about being in union with the Lord Jesus. That as they received forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternity, they received it in conjunction with the One who accomplished those works for them. We all understand the idea of a gift, right? The idea of a gift. Some of us buy our own gifts. We get them sent to us in the mail pretty frequently. That's that's good. I hope you're thrifty and wise in that. The gift of Christ, when we... Let me ask you a question. When you buy a gift for yourself from one of the large gift places, do you... Are you desiring for the chief executive officer of that company to come and live with you? when you have that gift? How would you like it if He delivered the gift and stayed in your home with the expectation uh, that uh, you get up in the morning and there He is on the couch? Um, and, uh, and for breakfast, uh, you set the table for four and He's wondering where you're going to sit because this is His place. Is that the idea when you get a gift? You see, if we think of Christ in that way, then we're, we're doing something which is, in a sense, normal, right? We, we receive the gift, but we, we didn't really know that that meant that He would come and live with us forever. And the reality is, is that we, we might feel like the Apostle Peter when he really discovered the priesthood, the lordship of Christ, the perfection of the Messiah, when he said, Oh God, get away from me, because I'm a sinful man. And so the Apostle Paul is trying to describe to the Corinthians, Look, you guys were happy about this gift. But, but there are strings attached And you actually don't really have the option of whether or not the giver is going to be with you. He is with you. He's here. Right? And so so he wants to accentuate that, that their union with Christ means that whatever it is they do, he's with them. He's with them. Right? Hey, Jesus, can you go into the other room while I watch this movie? Hey, uh, this phone call is going to be bad, and I'm going to really let him have it. Could you, like, close your ears while I say this? Right? Okay, so, so this is really a significant issue that the Apostle Paul is dealing with here. He addresses it a little bit in chapter 6. 
He says in 6.13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. This is the physical body, 6.17. He's not speaking about the body of Christ, by the way. Uh, He's not speaking about the church as a whole, as a local church. He's speaking about the individual believer. Right, six seventeen. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with Him. Six nineteen through twenty. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. Now, interestingly enough, of course, not all the Corinthians felt the exact same way about what the Apostle Paul was saying in chapter seven. Uh, because of the acute sexual immorality in Corinth, some believers decided that it was best that even the married shouldn't have sexual relations. The Apostle Paul also addresses this issue with Christ-like diplomacy and care, affirming the goodness of sexual intimacy in marriage and the equality of husband and wife in dealing with it, which would have been, in some ways, rather radical for the day. The Apostle Paul brings to bear the Word of God in this situation as well. So this is the context of kind of, you know, some of the thoughts that the, that the Corinthian church had, some of the impact the culture had on them and how they, how they decided to kind of march off forward in that and how some of that was uh, not really the greatest. And here's the Apostle Paul. He's going to bring the truth of God to them and um, pray for the best, right? So here we are in chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 1. It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you. This was apparently a well-known public event. It was a public sin. Uh, The expectation is that likely um, perhaps a son had the wife of his father who maybe died or something. Perhaps his father died, but his father's wife was still, who wasn't his mother, uh, was still, still there. Um, certain number of uh, credible options for the exact mechanics of how this this might be come about, but nonetheless, it was a public sin that even the pagans, as he said, considered immoral. Uh, the issue isn't that the pagans didn't do this, because the pagans sin in every which way, but the pagans, those who reject God, also considered it immoral, and so that's the Apostle Paul's point. Verse 2, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? The general demeanor of the Corinthian church was to be proud of themselves and their level of faithfulness to God. This letter and the issues it addresses reveals that while, yes, they were a church with redeemed people in it, they were, like other churches, in need of growth, maturity, sanctification. They had no reason to boast in themselves, nor does any other church, but only to boast in the Lord. I mean, uh, you know, uh, the, the possibilities, of course, are endless in any fellowship to boast in things that that would really throw them off the real realities of where they were spiritually and the things they need to focus on, right? I mean, uh, we, have, we have a confession that is very, very helpful and effective uh, as we plow forward in faithfulness to the Word of God. But nonetheless, if we, if we just say, well, we're confessional, so therefore, you know, we're perfect. No, that, that's, not, that's not true. I mean, 
there are confessional churches that blow it every day. I mean, that, that get get it horribly wrong. I mean, so uh, or that hide behind that, and it's 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 a it's a paper. Uh, covering and so, uh, you know, it might be that oh well, we read the best books and so therefore, or we like the Puritans over here and so therefore we're 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 good. You know, we you, we have this impenetrable shell. No, I mean yes, read the Puritans, right? But just because you got the books on your shelf, and even read them, I mean we 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 can't be puffed up, right? And that's the Apostle Paul's point here. Um, keep reading the books, right? Keep. Investing yourself in the Word of God, keep embracing the truths of God, but recognize, yeah, we're, man, we're we're all, you know, we're we've got daily oil requirements. You know what I'm saying? I mean, yeah, don't don't forget that, right? This is a preventative maintenance sheet. It's just needs needs to be done. That's what uh, that's what we need to need to think about. The reflexive action of this grievous public sin should have been mourning. Should have been. Well, not because the whole congregation sinned, right? But simply because sin, uh, particularly grievous public sin in any congregation, affects everyone. We, we, can't, we can't avoid it. Uh, we can't deny it, right? We can't pretend it doesn't happen, right? Um, and, uh, and we need to recognize that, um, you know, the... The lowering tide, all the ships in the harbor go down, right? But the rising tide brings them all up again. We're thankful for that. It's also true that some people uh, would have pride and want to cover up situations like this because uh, they have perhaps in their minds this idea that, that uh, churches cause sins. And that if you have a sin in your church, then there must be some defect, Right? Now, I can guarantee you uh, that every church is not perfect. And that, I think, would mean, uh, by rules of logic, that therefore every church has some sort of defect, perhaps. Right? But nonetheless, to see it as causative, and because it's causative for me to hide this idea that we have sin that we're not going to deal with, would be, would be a foolish thing, and it would stand in opposition to the rules uh, or the Word of God that's given to us, and also things that are reasonable and rational as well. We want to be up front and open. Verse 3, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Now, it was a public situation. Paul certainly had insight into the affairs of the church. Those in the local congregation should have taken swift judicious action to deal with the grievous public sin. Well, they didn't. They didn't deal with it. And what Paul approached him with um, is just, again, this is a clear, unambiguous situation uh, that you should have dealt with, and so I'm going to help you with this. Verses 4 and 5, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, you might find it interesting. Um, I mean, this is a place where we would look uh, for this idea of an elder led congregational church. Uh, the Apostle Paul didn't take it upon himself, he didn't, he didn't declare the man to be excommunicated from the church, did he? 
He didn't do that. He made a recommendation and he called the church uh, really to consent to that affirmation and to do that which needed to be done. He didn't take to himself this authority. And we should also uh, see here and be certain for ourselves, in verse 5 he says, so that his spirit may be saved. So this is probably one of the most dramatic situations of public excommunication in all of the New Testament. And even on this occasion, uh, we see that the intent is that it be remedial, that it be used to draw one back to Christ. So whatever deliver this man for the destruction of his flesh fully means the apostle does view the expulsion as remedial, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now here's something that might catch us by surprise. And that is that all of us need to have our flesh, our sinful flesh, destroyed. We, we, we all need to have our sinful flesh destroyed. Uh, by the grace of God, hopefully it will not need to be done in such uh, a, a, a public, uh, urgent matter as is done in this one that's being cast out of the church at Corinth. But nonetheless, uh, that's the reality for all of us is that we have sinful flesh that needs to be destroyed. That's, as it were, the old man, right? The sinful man. This idea of dying to self. Dying to self. What does that mean? Well, it means all of the sinful aspects of who I am, that I lay those down, that they are crucified on the cross of Christ. It's not that we lose ourselves in this sort of nirvana concept where we're drawn into the one or something like that. That's, that's not it. The point is, is that we, we are called upon to die to self. Right? So that Christ can live in me. John the Baptist said the same thing. What did he say? He said, I must decrease. I must decrease. And he must increase. I must decrease and he must increase. Same idea. So are you dead yet? Are you dead yet? Are you daily dying to self? It's possible that the things that are most urgent about us are actually things that are attached to our old sinful selves. The things that we get upset about. The things that we're proud of. The things that seem to be a priority. It, it is possible that those things are actually associated with the old self that needs to die. Not the new self that's poured out 
in service to others. Verses 6 and 7, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now, this is an interesting reference that it might not... uh, it's not necessarily a reason why it would be clear to us, right? This idea of leaven, it perhaps seems a little bit uh, out of place maybe here in, in this passage. And so we, if um, we were to go back and read about the old Passover, uh, perhaps even the first Passover, um, the children of Israel uh, were, were to look high and low in their homes to make sure there was no leavening agent in their homes before they ate the Passover, because the bread was, of course, to be unleavened. And the whole idea there was that uh, leaven, uh, of course, which we appropriately appreciate in our breads and other things, nonetheless, uh, it was simply used as a picture, an illustration of sin. And so in the Passover, the idea was is that, is that we're, we're affirming uh, Christ the Passover, Christ the substitutionary one for us, the Messiah, and so forth and so on, the atonement that in this case in the Passover the Lamb brought, and that we're, we're being studious in our removal of any of this yeast agents, and that's the idea that he's talking about here. Removing every trace of leaven as they anticipated feasting on that which pointed to Christ. The apostles bring in this idea to its ultimate conclusion. Now the redeemed feast on Christ. And so we should cleanse out from our lives the old leaven. Shouldn't we show cherish Christ as we're nourished by Him? pictured in the Lord's Supper, that we would want to studiously consider the condition of our lives in light of Christ's obedience applied to us in all things, death and life. So, perhaps to hit on a a sore subject, if you went to this elegant meal... Uh, as a family, you know, and um, there were the two forks and the two spoons and the one knife and the other fork up here at the top with several glasses and you have these multiple courses coming your way and then one of your children says, do you have chicken nuggets? Now, not that chicken nuggets are sinful, but if you would help follow this illustration, the point is is that the urgency in the Old Testament folks who were enjoying and affirming the Passover was they wanted to take the Passover meal as it was. Right? They didn't want it to be negatively impacted by bringing anything else in. Right? So... So my mother would be very concerned to set chicken nuggets on the table with what it is that she has laid out in silver and so forth. Does that make sense? And so that's one of the ideas that he's getting at here. Would we not want, as the people of God, to, to approach Him right, 
with all of the intentional purity that we can, to lay aside and lay down our sinful flesh. And that's, of course, something that we're reminded in our own fellowship every week with the Lord's Supper. A transition from malice and evil to sincerity and truth. Verses 9 through 13. What a, what a challenging application. Distinctions between the church and the world. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. Or the greedy and, swin, and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. I always think of Christian and faithful in the book Pilgrim's Progress when I think of this as they're approaching Vanity Fair. Uh, I think it's Evangelist actually that warns them about it and he says, you know, you might not both make it out alive from Vanity Fair. And Christian has the very brilliant idea. Well, I mean, let's go around it. Good idea. I like that idea. But he says, well, if you were to go around Vanity Fair, you would have to go out of this world. The only way through to heaven is through the world. Right? That's the only way to heaven. And the Apostle Paul affirms this idea. Look, I I didn't mean... uh, to not associate with the sexually immoral in this world, right? Those are the people who are ripe for the gospel. And they need to hear it from us. But he says in verse 11, Now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler. Not even to eat is with such a one, this distinction... Again, their, their relationship to Christ was, was something that set them apart. It was, it was this thing that was very important. They were to guard that. And there was a distinction here made between um, those who claim to be set apart as members of the church and have lives that reflect union with Christ, and secondly, those who claim to be set apart as members of the church and live as if they are not set apart to holiness. The vocation we have is believing churchmen, those associated with the church as the pillar and support of the truth, is to guard jealously the church as the bride of Christ and to bring to bear the authority of the church, of Christ, I should say, in the church, which may include purging the church of those involved in grievous public sin. Matthew 18 is consistent with this idea Interestingly enough, it it appears that Matthew 18 could have actually been written after 1 Corinthians. But nonetheless, we have a consistent idea here that that there's got to be this jealous guarding of the church, the local church, that is set apart for God. It is reasonable to expect that there were other challenging issues in Corinth. I mean, this is kind of a, a big deal, right? I mean, 
Do you think everything else was like perfect there? <laughs> I mean, of course, we have several letters where he deals with lots of other situations, but they all, of course, seem to be pretty large in our eyes, and that's probably appropriate. But there were other challenging issues that Paul never recommended public discipline for. Characteristics of those who've been redeemed but are imperfect and have the residue of unredeemed flesh. These personal issues make others feel uncomfortable. It may lead some into temptation. They might cause visitors to question the sincerity of our fellowship. They, they might draw people away from Christ instead of to Him. These are, these are no doubt matters that were true in Corinth and they're, they're true of us as well. It might be a sarcastic, biting tongue. It might be the lack of seriousness in conversation. It might be uh, the brooding attitude over undealt with sin or disagreements nursed, yet always just below the surface. It might be a lack of personal self-control, which unleashes anger or bitterness or reveals a bent to meanness. It may be arrogance or lack of genuine Christian mercy and grace, refusal to truly invest oneself in the body of Christ, an inclination to clickishness. None of these things are directly dealt with in the letter, actually. But no doubt they were issues that um, can unfortunately be part of the character of a fellowship. And these are things that would be important. We, we also shouldn't uh, take any pride in the fact that we're not presently dealing with the exact same situation that the Apostle Paul is dealing with in chapter 5. And everyone said, Amen. But that doesn't mean, right, that, that there aren't these rough edges. All of us have them. We all have ways that we annoy one another, that we perhaps draw each other away from Christ, that we, that we incline uh, to certain aspects that really aren't beautiful in the eyes of God, that need to be shaped. And, and that's, of course, one of the reasons why this transparent cultivation of humility and a recognition of the need to be corrected is so present but also not easy. True Christian love for brother and sister in Christ will bring about eventual conversations and encouragements designed to smooth out the coarseness of unredeemed flesh. The center point of a worship service, of course, is the proclamation of the Word of God. But the central culture of a local congregation would, would be one of transparent love, genuine love for one another, which has real depth and warmth, which reveals conforming to Christ's power. We all know this. But our natural absorption into self inclines us to look to other people to make this happen instead of ourselves. So, again, the Apostle is talking about these things in the midst of all these issues, the keys of the kingdom referenced in Matthew 18, ensure that clarity from the Lord is not only possible but should be expected in every case. This is one of the things that's interesting about 
matters, either a public or private offenses, public or private discipline in a church that would potentially involve expulsion from the church. And that's the promise of not only clarity, but discernment for the leaders in the church. And these are the keys of the kingdom that are referenced in Matthew chapter 18, verses 18 through 20. This idea that when two or three are gathered in my name, I promise to be in the midst of you, that that passage of Scripture, the context is very, very important. It's a context of discipline, actually. It's not a promise uh, noteworthily of prayer. The reality is, is Jesus is always with us. I don't have to have two people to get the critical mass in order to create an opportunity for Jesus to be there. Right? That's not how it works. He's omnipresent, right? He's always there. But there's a promise of this special discernment because there are many, many people that want to, uh, when it comes to these hard things, they want to say, well, we just don't know what to do. Nobody knows. Oh, Jesus says, oh, no, somebody does know. (laughs) Somebody does know what to do. It's revealed in His Word, and I'm calling upon you to do that. And that's the idea. Some... Some seem shocked that Christ makes judgments regarding His blood-bought body. This is a very interesting situation that we do find ourselves in as God's people. This idea that God actually makes decisions. That He has choices. James addresses this perhaps most pointedly, James 4, 5. Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? Now here's an interesting word applied to the Lord Himself. Jealousy. That sounds monstrous, doesn't it? God is a jealous God. And I would encourage you to be very, very happy about that. Because He guards His blood-bought body jealously. That means that He, that he would be as king and repel those who would take away His church. He would, he would make sure that the proclamation and the truths of God would be, of course, um, given and published as we see here written in the Word of God. No doubt most agree that the Bible has much to say about the Christ-conforming culture that should characterize the church, but some insist that only God can impose this sort of judgment. They say, well, yes, God should judge the church. You That's exactly right. And so we could collectively come together and we could say, God, you do this. You do it. Glad I got that out of the way. But what does God say to us? Well, Verses 12 and 13, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges the outside. Purge the evil person from you. 
I would rather walk through broken glass barefooted than do this. We say, God, you do it. And he says, no, you do it. I've given you my word. I've given you the authority of Christ. I've given you the power of the Holy Spirit. The grammar is quite simple. In the ESV, the word purge here I hate to get all Greek on you. It, it's a past tense word that has future action, and it's an imperative. It's not indicative. The, the point, he's not making a statement of fact. And further, the idea of purge, it's, it's a second person plural. And so what he's saying is, you purge the person. It's a command. It's very simple. There's no ambiguity at all about it. And that's the idea that we see here. The Lord Jesus comes, of course, to the same conclusion in Matthew 18. We may, we may be inclined to look to God and say, you do it. And He looks to us in the Scriptures and says, yes, I will, through you, directed by my word and the power of the Holy Spirit. Did everyone sing hymn 420 today? I'm going to do something a little odd and ask you to turn there. I promise that I'm not going to sing this. And also that you're not going to sing it again either. How about that? Let's... Let's look at hymn 420. Let's look at what we sang together. A charge to keep I have, a God to glorify, who gave His Son my soul to save and fit it for the sky. To serve the present age, my calling to fulfill, oh, may it all my powers engage to do my Master's will. Arm me with jealous care as in Thy sight to live. And now Thy servant, Lord, prepare a strict account to give. Help me to watch and pray and still on Thee rely. Oh, let me not my trust betray, but press to realms on high. Let us pray.